Hear these words this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Will you pray with me one more time? Lord God, I pray that as your word goes forth this morning, let it not be my words that your people hear. Lord, as your word came through Balaam's donkey, may your word come through me this morning. May it go out, O oh God. As the rains fall down from heaven, may it go out and may it accomplish the thing that you intended it to do. Lord, may your words not come back empty. But I pray that they would work in hearts this morning. I pray that they would work in my sinful life, in the lives of those gathered here, to draw believers to you, to draw unbelievers to you. Bless us and keep us, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we go through our 100th anniversary uh, remembrance uh, for, for this month, we are kind of smack dab in the middle of it. We started two weeks ago. In two weeks, we'll be concluding it with a crescendo as we celebrate our 100th anniversary in a morning, afternoon uh, service uh, along with lunch. So we're in the middle of that. We are also in the middle of a series that I'm calling Crossroads. Crossroads, because we are a church at a crossroads. We stand with our backs to our first 100 years, and we stand with our second century out in front of us. And we face a choice. Do we, as a church, choose to grab on to the mission that God has for us? Do we dive in wholeheartedly, or do we continue to coast? These are the choices. And I'm preaching this sermon series in order to encourage us to dive into the mission that God has for us. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, the last thing that he said was go into all the world in order to make disciples. That is the mission that our church has today. That is not our mission because the session met for six months and decided that would be our mission, although we did do that. It's our mission because God has handed us our mission. That is what we as the church are to do. 
And we do not go and do that mission just so that we can have more butts in these seats. Although I would love to see that. We are going on this mission because there are people around us, neighbors whom we've never met, maybe some we have, who don't know Jesus. There are people who live around us who are on their way to an eternity without our God. We want them to come in. We want them to experience the grace that God has offered. That is why it's our mission to make disciples. And over these five weeks, we're spending time looking at at what that looks like. What does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean for us personally to be a disciple? What does it mean to help the people in our church become disciples? What does it mean to go and find disciples in order to bless our world? What does that look like? Last week, we talked about joyful worship. As we, as a church, gather here this morning, it may seem like an inward-focused activity where we come just together in order to hang out with each other for a little bit on Sunday mornings. But we talked about how as we come into the presence of God, we are receiving from God. God has chosen to spread his word on Sunday morning. And before we can go out into the world to share the word of God, which we should do, and we'll talk about that. Before we do that, we have to come and receive. God's word flows out on Sunday morning, and we receive it, and then turn to the world in order to bless God our neighbors with that. This morning we were talking about humble growth. Humble growth. We'll be focused primarily in the book of Ephesians this morning in the passage that we've already read. But before we get there, I want to teach you guys two words. These are theological words. So you guys know how sometimes I, you know, I'm, I'm preaching and I say, oh, this thing, you know, is from the text or the Hebrew and I found it to be interesting. And then I tell you that it's not on the test. You don't have to know it, but if you find it to be interesting, then great. And if you don't catch it, you can just let it slide by you. The two words that I'm about to teach you are on the test. You need to know these ones. There's a little spot in your bulletin to write this down. If, if you need to, that's totally okay. If you got these locked and loaded in your brain already, praise God. If you don't, go ahead and write them out. Those two words are justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. The word justify, if you're reading in your Bible, anytime the word righteousness or righteous is used in your Bible, justification or justify or any any one of those words, it comes from the same word group. And it's talking about the same thing. On the other side, with sanctification, anytime the word holy, holiness is used, sanctuary, sanctification, anything along those lines, the word sanctification is used. Justification is primarily a declaration, a legal declaration, that someone or something is in the right. I don't know if they're still running Judge Judy on TV. Is that still a thing? Everyone's nodding. I don't watch TV, but when I was growing up, you know, like between the news and whatever was on TV at 8 o'clock, you would watch Judge Judy because you never turned it on to watch Judge Judy. It's just on and you watch. Anyway, 
So in judge, with Judge Judy, like, you know, two people come into the courtroom, and it's small claims court, or at least it pretends to be small claims court, but it's actually a TV. Anyway, not important. Two people come in. One person says, hey, I have a dispute against this other person. They stole my dog, or they damaged my property, or whatever it is. And you have the plaintiff, and you have the defendant. And they, they give their, their reasons back and forth, and then you know, Judge Judy in her morally superior, you know, really harsh attitude, always comes down on one side or the other. And she declares one of them to be in the right and the other to be in the wrong. Sometimes she sides with the defendant, sometimes she sides with the accuser. But nine times out of 10, she says, you are right and you are wrong. She legally declares not actually legally, because she's not, it's a TV thing, anyway. But she legally declares, you are in the right. She declares someone righteous. That is what the word justification means. When we're talking about our salvation, justification is a key term. Even though we are sinful people, even though we do not deserve to be declared righteous, to be declared in the right, God as almighty judge takes those who are his people, those who belong to him, those who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he declares them to be righteous. It's a one-time declaration. I declare you to be in the right, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because he lived a perfect life, we are declared to be righteous. That's justification. On the other side, we have sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more holy. Remember, holiness and sanctification are kind of they're the same word group. For those of you who are saved, you're Christians, whatever, whatever word you want to use for that, you were justified at the moment of your conversion. God declared you righteous, but sanctification is a slower process. Sanctification takes place throughout our lifetime because the moment we are justified, we're declared righteous, we don't automatically become sinless. We are righteous, but we have to become more and more holy until that final day when God has made us fully and completely holy. Do you guys remember the scale that we you know, pictured on the front of the... You know, over there we have the worst pagan you've ever met, you know, not necessarily a gang member or, you know, a murderer or anything like that. Maybe there's someone who goes to church, but their heart is so closed off to the things of God that they're, you know, they're inwardly focused. They don't love God like they should. They don't love their neighbor like they should. They're way over here. On the other side, we have the person who is completely holy, completely made righteous, completely just, they're the perfect person over here. This, this person, it's a long walk. Anyway, this person doesn't, they don't exist in this life because no one in this life has been made completely holy. We're all sort of on this side of the thing if we're Christians. Right here in the middle is where, you know, the person for the first time, they repent of their sins, they turn away from what the sins that they have done, they forsake them and they turn in trust to Jesus Christ and God declares them righteous. He makes them alive. He changes them as a person. And from here to here, the journey from here to here is the journey of sanctification the journey of becoming more and more holy, the journey of sinning less and less, the journey of loving God more and more. And eventually, on that day, when our bodies are raised from the dead incorruptible, when we are forever changed, we will stand holy and perfect and entire before Jesus Christ. Finally, over there. So there's justification, a declaration, 
You are righteous. You are in the right. We are justified not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And that kicks off a process of sanctification where we grow more and more in holiness. Are you with me? We're with me. Beautiful. Let me read Ephesians chapter 2, if I can. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of my, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I've actually preached on it twice here, uh, and I'm going to go back to it again. It's one of my favorites because it so clearly talks about the gospel and what it means to be saved. I'm going to kind of skip through it if that's okay hitting the major points. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. We were all over here. We didn't love God as we should. We were spiritually dead. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Being made alive is another one of those word pictures that God uses about the moment of conversion, the moment of salvation. God makes us alive. He declares us to be righteous. Made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And this is an important key point. The entire journey from there to there is not one that's driven by our own effort. It's one that's driven by God's grace. He is the one who pulls us from being over there. He's the one who makes our hearts alive. He is the one who accomplishes this whole thing. Verse number 10, for we are his workmanship. We are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. The word, or the picture that I always like to use for this is um, a sculptor, um, you know, like a sculptor like Michelangelo who's carving out a marble statue. It's his work of art, and he's chiseling away at the outside of it, and he's got some sort of picture, some sort of model, something he's working on, but he's working on this block of marble in order to make it into a perfect work of art, in order to make it beautiful. We are God's workmanship, created in the mold of Jesus Christ. God's chipping away at us, working at us, making us more and more like Christ. That is the walk of sanctification. Who's the one at work in that picture. Who's the one doing the thing? The sculptor. God. He's the one making us into an image. He's the one bringing us from here to here. But the end of the verse says this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In that phrase, who's doing the thing of bringing us from here to here? It's not a trick question. I hope not. We are. We are supposed to walk in them. So God is preparing us. He's making us into people. But also he's preparing good works that we should walk in them. There's a weird paradox there. God is the one driving us, but we still walk in the path that God has laid out for us. We still grow in grace. God is the one pulling us, but we still have to take the steps. It's all motivated by God's grace. He's the one pulling us along. We have these two things. There's justification, the moment we begin, 
that kicks off a long life of sanctification. There's two aspects of sanctification that we, that we should talk about, two, two different sides of it. And they're really just two sides of the same coin. On the one side, there's taking the sinful side of us and putting it to death. The pride that we have, the arrogance that we have, the selfishness that we have, the lies that we tell about other people, the times that you snap at your husband or your wife, the times that you are unkind to the people around you, those times, God is slowly snipping those away from us. So we are becoming less and less sinful. But we're also increasing in good works. There's a negative side of this and a positive side to this. So that even as we become less and less sinful, we start to do more and more for our fellow humans. We start to love them. We start to love God more and more. And so in this process, we start sinning less and less, and we start doing more and more works. There are two sides to the same coin, as God makes us more and more holy. How? Do we become more and more holy? What does this walk from here to here look like? How can we help ourselves in this walk? If we are people who want to become more and more sinless, who want to start doing more and more good works, how can we accomplish that? If God is calling us to good works, not in order to please him, he's already declared us righteous based on the works of Jesus Christ, But in response to that, in order to complete our salvation, God is creating us to be more and more holy. But how does that work? Ephesians 4, the passage that we've already read. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Until we all wind up over there against that wall. See, the picture in Ephesians 4 is that of a human growing up. I have, I have a little boy. Most of you have met him. He's, he's the cutest thing in the world. And he's growing. And it's terrifying. Like, he used to be really, really small, and he used to, like, you know, not really open his eyes. And then even when he opened his eyes, like, he didn't really smile. He just kind of sort of scowled the entire time, which was adorable because he's a little cute baby. But now he's, he's like, super awake, and he's super, super... Um, What's the word? He's just super happy all the time, and he interacts with people, and he, and he looks at them, and he smiles at them, and he's just the cutest. He's growing up, and soon he's going to be crawling around all over the place. He's already scooching. Soon he's going to be walking, and then he's going to be talking, and then he's going to go to school, and then he's going to graduate. It's going to be this whole thing, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be thrilling, but that's what people do. They grow up. Paul here pictures the Christian life, the walk from here to here, as the change from being a baby to a full-grown man until we all attain to mature manhood. One of the ways in which we grow is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 2. Peter writes there, he says, As newborn babies, desire the sincere milk of the word. Right, just, as, just as my son, right, he's, he's been eating a lot of solid foods for, for a bit now, but when he started out, it was just milk because he needed to grow. He was born prematurely. He was underweight. He needed to eat and eat and eat because he needed to grow strong enough so that he could go home from the hospital. He needed to drink the milk that would make him strong. And we, as, as Christians, are to drink the milk of the word. 
Right? That's what we talked about last week, joyful worship. When we come into the presence of God, we hear the preaching of the word. We hear the word of God read. That's how we grow, is it works in our hearts. It works in our lives. But that's not all we do. It's primary. It's essential. But the picture in Ephesians 4, if we can go back there, is a picture of the body of Christ building itself up. Verse number 16 says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each part makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are the body of Christ. We are all parts of each other. Paul, in other places, describes you know, some people as the hands, some people as the feet, some people as the mouths. We all bring different things to this body, but we are all here growing up together. We are all here growing up together, increasing in sanctification. We are all here doing our part in order to grow up the body, to grow up each other into maturity, to sanctify each other. God has given us each other as a gift to help accomplish our sanctification, our growing in holiness, becoming less and less sinful. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 10. And when I, when I was growing up, I always learned this verse uh, as, as sort of a command, and it was just kind of held over somebody's head if they missed church, uh, right? This is Hebrews 10.25. It says, not neglecting to meet together. And I always heard it as don't neglect to meet together, because, you know, if somebody was sleeping on Sunday mornings, you got that verse quoted at you, and you're like, oh, I forgot to meet together. And that, that's a good intention, but ultimately it's taking that verse out of context. It doesn't say don't forsake, well, that's how I grew up with the King James. It doesn't say don't forsake the, uh, the assembling of yourselves together, but it looks back to, the, it's, not a, it's not a complete sentence. This is not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. It looks back to the previous verse. And the previous verse says this, let me read it, because I'm going to butcher it again. Verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What a verse. Let's consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. Let's spend time thinking about how we can encourage each other in this process of sanctification, in loving each other more, in loving God more, in doing more and more good works. Let us consider how we can do that. And then the next verse, which modifies it, not neglecting to meet together. This is one of the ways in which we do that. By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Right? As we're trying to get to on that final day, we're trying to make it over here, we're trying to be the perfect disciples of Jesus Christ, who by faith who by the working of God in our lives love God as we're supposed to, love our neighbors as supposed to. As, as this day draws near, where God makes us complete, we're supposed to encourage each other in this walk. What a beautiful picture that is. I don't, I don't know how many of you have ever played uh, sports, either in high school or college or anything like that. Uh, at the very least, I know a number of you watch sports. Uh, apologies to you Michigan fans, condolences on whatever that was yesterday. Anyway, we're familiar with the concept 
of people cheering on an athlete who is running a race, who is playing a game. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it, it's an, it can be an amazing thing when you're competing on a field, playing soccer or football or running a race, and you hear someone's voice from the stands encouraging you. One more lap. You're almost done. Just hold on a little bit more longer and you can, and you can win. To hear someone's voice calling out. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. Let us consider how to encourage one another. As we're all running this race, I realize we're jumping all over the place and we're mixing metaphors like crazy, and I apologize for that, but I think we all, we all kind of get where we're going. As we're all running this race, we want to hear voices encouraging us. Let us consider how to encourage one another, how to stir each other up to love and good works. Because according to Ephesians 4, God has given us each other. We are to minister to each other. Each part works to build the body up so that we can become more and more like Christ. There are two sides of sanctification, if we remember that from earlier. There's the positive side as we grow in Christian love and Christian good works, but there's also the side where we become less and less sinful, where we purge out the sinful habits that are in our lives. Let me read to you from Galatians 6, if I can. Brothers, this is Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor." If anyone's caught in a transgression, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So if we are given to each other in order to become more and more holy, to grow on this work of sanctification, again, not justification, that's a one-time declaration, right? We stand legally in the sight of God, perfectly holy. Sanctification is not in order to earn God's favor. We already have that. It's because We have earned God's favor that we're growing in holiness. But as we seek to grow in holiness, God has given us each other to build each other up in love, to encourage us, to be that voice crying out from the sidelines saying, you can keep going, you can do it, I believe in you. But also to call us out on our sin. I don't know about you guys, but I'm I'm thankful for the people who call me out on my sin. I'm thankful for my wife, who doesn't let me treat her poorly when I'm having a bad day. She shuts it down, and she should. I'm thankful for the people who call out my arrogance and my pride. It's a good thing to have people in your lives who can see into your heart, who can know you, and say, that's sin, and you've got to deal with it. Because we as people... I believe it's the book of Proverbs that says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And when we look in our own hearts, yes, we may see our own faults and failures. But we're really good at excusing those, right? We're really good at saying, oh, I'm not not a jerk, I'm just high strung. 
oh, it's okay, I, you know, I can gossip a little bit. I'm not like, you know, cheating on my spouse or anything like that. We rename our sin in order to make it sound less serious than it is. We look for people who are doing worse things than us in order to make ourselves look good in our own sight. And sometimes we need someone who knows us to look at our hearts, to look at us and say, you got to repent of that. you got to turn to Christ because that sin is weighing you down. We need those relationships, those people who will stand on the sidelines and encourage us, who will say, you've got this, I believe in you. You can keep pushing into Christ and keep following in the grace as he's pulling you in. You can keep going even when you don't want to. We need those people who say, you've got that sin in your life, you need to repent. We need to grow together. There's a reason we're calling it humble growth, not just growth. Humble growth. Because in order to truly grow, we need to be people who are willing to acknowledge that we are sinners. There's a tendency in churches to pretend, to pretend that we're over here. There's a tendency in churches to come in and say, oh yes, I love God as as I should. I love my neighbor as I should. I have no faults and no failures. And even if I do have faults and failures, they are the very excusable kind. They're the kind that you can easily overlook. Maybe they're understandable. The reality is that every single one of us in here, whether we are a saved sinner, whether we're an unsaved sinner, every single one of us, me included, Let's not pretend that just because I'm the pastor doesn't, that doesn't mean that I'm somehow some, you know, super saint who's way over there. We are all sinners. We are all on this journey. And it takes humility to acknowledge that. So if we are going to be a people who become the disciples of Christ that we have been designed to be, we are going to make disciples, then we need to be disciples. We need people in our lives who are going to encourage us and who are going to call us out on our sin. I don't know how many of you garden. I imagine it's, it's a few of you. Um, if you garden, if you have... I know Janet has a tomato plant, so this is, this is the one I'm thinking of. It was the same tomato plant that, you know, just had like one small little tomato that she like ate, made half of a sandwich with that I mentioned a few. Anyway, that's not important. What is important is that when you're growing a tomato plant, you put like a little cage around it so that it can grow up, right? You do that with a lot of flowers, right? With like a vine, you may put, you know, you know a little trellis up so it grows up. Um, I remember when I was growing up, my dad did that. Like he put morning glories on either side of our, of our porch and they kind of grew up the the trellis, the lattice. We shouldn't confuse the trellis with the vine. As a church, in order to encourage humble growth, we've scheduled home groups. We had one last Thursday. We're going to have one, not this Thursday, but next Thursday. October 3rd, I believe it is. Humble growth is not home groups. 
You can go to home group without having humble growth. You can have humble growth without home group. Humble, or excuse me, home group is the trellis that the vine is supposed to climb up. And we've set it there in order to encourage people to have a time, to have an opportunity for humble growth. We want that time to be an opportunity where people encourage you in your Christian life, where you say, I feel like giving up. I feel like stopping. I feel like going back a little bit. We have that time so people can encourage you in your growth. We have that time so people can look into your life and call you out on your sin. And I, I say that hesitantly because that's one of those things you have to have a level of trust with it. You can't just go up to someone that you barely know and say, I think you're really arrogant. I'm like, you don't even know my kids' names, right? How can you call me arrogant? There has to be a level of trust there. But as we grow as a church, as we spend more and more time together, we'll develop that level of trust so that we can have those people who look into our lives and say, I know you're okay with what you're doing, but I don't think you should be. I think you need to repent of your sin. And if we are humble people who are truly growing, seeking to put our sin to death, seeking to grow up in grace, we'll say, yeah, I think you're right. Thank you for calling that out. God has given us each other so that we can grow up together to be the mature church that God has called and designed us to be. Praise God that he has justified us, that he has declared us to be righteous, even when we are sinful, even when we deserved his wrath. He said, you are righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. And praise God that after we have been declared righteous, he's the one pulling us in sanctification, causing us to grow more and more each day. He's the one who has placed us in a church so that we can have encouragement, so that we can be encouragements to other people. Praise God that on that final day, he will take all of those who are his, he won't lose one, and he will make us all perfect and complete and entire standing as we ought to be. As we seek to make disciples, let us remember that we are to be disciples. We have to make disciples of those who are in this room. So may God give us the grace to humbly grow together, to be the church that God has intended us to be. Will you pray with me? God Almighty, bless us and keep us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us. Lord, we look forward to the day where every tear is wiped away, where we no longer struggle with sin. Lord, where we finally love our neighbors as we're supposed to, but that day is not here yet. But until that day, draw us. Keep waking us up. Keep giving us a thirst for your word. Give us the grace to be blessed by our church family and to bless our church family by encouraging each other to love and to good works. May we build each other up for your glory and because of what you have done for us, O oh Christ. In his name we pray, amen.